Hello and welcome to a very special soundtrack showdown, our monthly podcast where we normally take two soundtracks and pit them against each other with five rounds and then decide an overall winner. We are your usual hosts, Ella Kova and Tristan Kane. Hello. And you can find us on www.tricellarmusic.com and feel free to spread the word about our awesome podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not even leave us a review and tell us your thoughts? Do you agree with our winners so far? Are there any soundtracks you want us to put head-to-head and dissect for you? Whether it's in film or TV or games, we would just love to hear from you. And you can find us and get in touch through all the usual social media platforms at Tristellar Music. So, now I did say that this is a very special episode, although actually I do have to mention, okay, if you hear, if you the audience are hearing some sort of rattling. It's because we may be about to be blown away by the wind. Exactly, enjoying like Dorothy in Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Because it's a very windy day today in the pod. Um, I don't know what's going on. I guess winter is on its way. Yeah, I think this may be like, remember we were doing the omen last week and there was the wind in the park? Yeah. Uh, Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Um, Just keep an eye out for any spires. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So, yeah, as I did say, this is a very special episode because in this episode we will not be fighting. No. In fact, I hope that we won't be arguing as much, hopefully. Um, it will be more of a peaceful discussion and more of a sharing experience with the main focus on us revealing and discussing the soundtracks that shaped us as composers. Yeah, yeah, I think this could be quite fun. Yeah, so Until I mention the Ring soundtrack. <laughs> are you actually going to... No, I'm not. You're bet fine. You better not. <laughs> See, there's still possibilities for fights here. I will, I will try and keep it... You civil. Know, okay, I'll try and keep it civil. You know, I'll just wait until after we finish the podcast and yeah, then I'll let you know. They don't get I mean. it. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. So, we do have to mention a spoiler alert. So, when we will be talking about the films uh, and the soundtracks, we will probably be mentioning about what happens in the end mm. and some spoilers. And this is a tricky one because you don't know what we're going to be talking about. So, And to be honest, yeah, I don't know what Tristan is going to be talking about. He doesn't know what films and soundtracks I'm going to be talking no. about. So, this is a surprise for both of us. Yes. So, make sure you've watched every film ever because otherwise we may ruin it for you. Because who knows? (laughs) But if not, don't fret. This is still going to be an exciting and interesting podcast because, you know, it's a great opportunity for you to kind of hear some snippets of really great music Mm. and actually be introduced to soundtracks that you've never probably ever heard of as well. You know, just it's always nice to kind of broaden your minds, your musical minds. broaden your horizons. Exactly. I'm sure that we're going to have six very different soundtracks today. So, Tristan, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, you start Oh, with my first one. So we should start with saying we've each picked three. Well, yeah, pick three. Well, I'm... Well, <laughs> Ella's cheated, everybody. First she set the rules, then she broke them. Well, no, I've no, I've, I've set it to three, but the third one is a little bit of a mixture of several because it was a time of my life which was very kind of surrounded by a specific genre and even country of music that mm-hmm. it was really hard for me to pick one album so i picked like at least one or two okay i kind of make an album right if you know what i mean okay we'll get to it i i, I may have done a similar cheat to that at some point oh as well, my so. god i can't believe it, you have a go at me <laughs> 
it would be great to start off with the first soundtrack that when you were young or whichever one really captured you, really connected with you as a person, I guess, and Mm -hmm. made you feel like, oh, yeah, this is this is a film that I really want to watch or this is the music that really makes me want to become a film composer, for instance. So Mm. maybe start with that. It's funny you ask about that because genuinely we have no idea like what each other picked or even the criterion with which we each picked one. But I I may have one that exactly fills that particular criteria. Ella is smiling because she knows she's read my mind. Go for it. (laughs) Maybe she's read my notes. But anyway, I am going for a film from 1995 when I was like, 12 or, or something, 12, 13, with a score by James Horner. Can you guess what it is? Braveheart. It is Braveheart. Oh, this is going to be interesting because I've got a bit of a trivia too. Oh. Interesting. Okay. Oh, well, this up. is good. This is good. Well, it's a trivia, but it's also something that we can have a bit of an argument with. Wow. Because I think James Horner ripped off the main thing from something that I grew up listening to. That's, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. Shall we start with the main theme then? What do you, what, what do you consider the main theme from Braveheart? It's it's the love theme, isn't it? Yeah, Connor? for the love of a princess. Yeah. So let, let's let's start with that. Let's start with that track now because this one has a very special place in my heart. I must say. So I really like that. That is, it's just one of the, I think, the great film love themes, certainly of, of, of the last 20 years. But you, you've got something to say about that? I do, but I, I think I would rather let you talk about it first before I jump in and then just ruin it for you. Wow. I don't, I don't, I don't even well, know if you not, ruin it. It's not ruin it. It's just, it's a, it's a fact that um, it is a beautiful um, love theme, one that I've heard before yeah in 1991 in 1991 well where from let's do it let's have it out are you sure yeah no let's do it okay well no let me first play it for you and then you can tell me okay Okay, we're gonna i'm gonna play it and you guys can let me know and tristan can let me know whether you think like oh it sounds very similar Mm -hmm. okay so here it is
Oh, it's certainly very, very similar. I, all I'm trying to think of is is where that's from. 91. You wouldn't know it, honestly. It's no? m- not many people would know it unless you're like into Japanese anime. Oh, okay. All right. So it's from a film. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a like obviously a original video animation film called Three Times Three Eyes. And that track was called Pie's Longing. Wow. Which I will be going deeper into because it's one of the soundtracks that actually I grew up listening to. Wow, that's yeah, really interesting. It is. And when I heard that and then I heard Brave's Heart, obviously, you know. A few years later, yeah. I was just like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, hmm. Yeah, no, fair enough. I agree. The fact that it's, uh, you know, it touches your heartstrings for sure. Yeah. And I think, like, I, to a certain extent, and, uh, like, I, I'm amused by that. I'd, I'd not heard that it, it came from there. I know that Horner is sort of known for ripping things off a bit in general, although he's mainly, like, the main thing that sort of detractors say about James Horner is that he rips himself off a lot, that he has very particular styles and very particular sounds that he reuses a lot. Like he uses the same danger theme in about six different films and things like that, which, you know, I've never personally had a problem with. I mean, um, Bernard Herrmann, who we talk about all the time and we quite revere, does exactly the same thing. He repeats the same sort of motifs, film after film after Mm. film. It's just style. But anyway, we're not even talking about that, so I won't go too far into that. The thing about this particular theme, so I don't think that this is necessarily a particularly... Like, it's beautiful, but it's not a particularly earth-shattering melody in its own right. It's not one of those melodies that you're just like, oh, wow, you know, that's just crazy how intricate and beautiful it is in terms of the melody itself. Why, do you think the Titanic's won it? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the thing, what I really love about this particular piece, and this actually isn't even the main piece that I want to talk about from this film, although I do really want to talk about this piece from this film because it has what is probably my favourite one minute of film music in any film. Wow, Because okay. it's not so much that melody, but it's what he does with that melody. So we'll describe sort of brave, briefly what this piece is in terms of the film. So this is the main love theme of Braveheart. And for people who've maybe not watched the film, which I think actually maybe quite a few people now, because I think Braveheart was one of those films that was really big at the time, but hasn't really endured as something that people watch a lot anymore, I don't know. Probably now because of um, the association with um, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So people try to kind of avoid it. Yeah, but it much. was a great film in its day. It was, you know, won Oscars and things like that. It was, it, was, it was a big deal. Anyway, so you've got William Wallace, who's, you know, the big Scottish hero legend, and he's falling in love with the Princess of England, who in real life was six years old, so we will not, like, <laughs> deal with that <laughs> but in the film is most definitely a consenting adult mm-hmm. <laughs> so and, and it's you know this beautiful little moment of, you know, it's a classic kind of drama star-crossed I'm sorry to backtrack there what so William Wallace fell in love with a princess I, no I don't I, so I think that this relationship never happened oh in right real thank life. god I was about exactly. to say <laughs> but obviously if it did <laughs> then it would be highly inappropriate yeah There's but, but I would be surprised because back in those days I mean come on different yeah. countries had different sort of um Sex before marriage, or yeah, even but like six, different... I think, is getting there. <laughs> 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 Ella's pulled a face. Anyway, Braveheart is known for a number of historical inaccuracies, but in terms of just the film and the concept, and the film, storytelling, and the storytelling, and... the storytelling of the film is great. A lot about the film is great, and this is so. This is love between sort of star-crossed lovers, classic drama scenario, and it's a really intimate, raw kind of moment between the two. And there's also this this theme is used a number of times later on in the film. Spoiler alert, because William Wallace winds up being captured and executed by, by the English. So there's a real sense of like longing and impossible love and, and all of those sorts of things. 
And that concept is captured in the middle of this of this track. Just, I love as it builds up to that statement, hey, you've got all of a sudden, like where it's been quite a simple string melody all along, he suddenly does, and okay, I apologize for getting into sort of technical musical stuff here, but he starts splitting out the internal string parts and he adds those suspensions where they just like drop out of the harmony. So you get these like little semitone rubs and it just, you get this feeling like the harmony sort of tearing itself apart right in the middle of the piece. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's heartbreaking. Like it's, it's such beautiful, emotive writing that you just, it's so rare. Th this is the sort of music that if it was in a Dvorak symphony or something, we'd be like, this is phenomenal music. And it's found in the middle of a, like, swords and kilts mm. action movie. And it's, it's stunning music. And then it goes into the, and then it finally, after doing this sort of really tense, heart-wrenching sort of stuff, it then breaks into like a full statement of a melody and then it has those descending horn counter melodies at the end of the line. It's just, it is so phenomenally stunning as writing. And that's why I love this. And that's why I love James Horner in general is that, yes, he can get schmaltzy. He did Titanic. I can't defend Titanic. <laughs> Although, well, you know, it's still a good score though. Yeah. And any time that memorable. you, yeah, yeah. And any time you write a film and get a number one hit out of it, I mean, come on, like, that's bank. We all wish we could do that. Yeah. But just the quality and the like, the intimacy and the attention to detail of that writing in the middle and then to sort of get that performance, it's so, so beautiful. And which is why to an extent, okay, yeah. I mean, who knows if he'd heard that, that piece of music or not. He, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, maybe it was conscious, maybe it was unconscious. But oh my goodness, did he do something with it. Like he really takes that uh, music to transcendental territory. It is... Phenomenal. Mm. <laughs> I, I love. <laughs> You're that getting one. breathless now, just yeah, talking it, about. I, I really. I, it I, really touched you, didn't it? It did, and I'd, I'd almost forgotten about it to a certain point. And then a year ago, I went to like a James Horner tribute concert um, at the Royal Albert Hall. Was it the Edgar Room? Uh, no, it was the one in the actual like full oh, Royal Albert Hall. Because I actually went and saw him talk before he oh, passed away. Oh, I wish I could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really love James Horner. It was actually um, really, he was great. I mean, hmm. just to actually t hear him talk about his experiences and his, I think it was, what was very fascinating was the amount of education that he obtained. Mm. The amount of masters of like, yeah. education, like he went back to university and got his masters, like more than one, mm -hmm. in so many different variety that... I'm quite surprised that he had to kind of sometimes uh, use the same formula mm -hmm. when, you know, if you have all this knowledge, you know, this sort of musical yeah. theory and composition, uh, you know, your mm. all this information. He's such an intellectual composer and, yeah. and such a knowledgeable composer. So I was a little bit surprised when you said that he tends to kind of 
use the same formulas. And I think part of that, but I think to a certain extent, if you learn about something enough, one approach is that, oh, I've learned all these things, so I can just try so many things. But the other thing is I've finally worked out the one that works. So I'm going to do that. And And get complacent, maybe. Maybe. I never feel that him maybe reusing ideas ever detracts from a film. I think it always, it always works in every in every like every occasion when he uses it you don't go oh well that was lazy it didn't work it like it works for that particular scene and then it's fine back to what i was saying but yeah sort of i was in there and hearing all of the other bits of james horner stuff and there's so many of them like the american tale Mm. stuff is beautiful and stunning some of the the alien score he did is really cool Mm -hmm. um there's lots of really good but then they played this i was like oh yeah braveheart i remember i really liked that and then they played that bit in the middle i was like oh that's why Mm. (laughs) i love that and then even, even preparing for this i was like Bringing them all together, I was like, okay, yeah, I should probably talk about Braveheart. Then I listened to that that track, and that track has been in my head for two weeks now. Did it like, bring you to tears? It does. It genuinely does. I really, really love that piece of music. But as I said, wasn't even particularly the one that I wanted to talk about because the the track from this film that I think is perhaps the most interesting in terms of for me as a composer and indeed for, for us as as a pair of composers is the track he does for the Battle of Stirling. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, and the, the reason I say for us is because it's one, one of the ones, because one of the things that James Horner was quite into was combining a bit of electronic mm. with his orchestral. So we'll just, how about we play the Battle of Stirling? So I, I, I think that's one of the great, it's one of the great battle scenes in, in film history, it's sort of from back in the day where these things were kind of almost real productions. I think they had the Irish army out there on mm. both sides fighting. They had this huge number of, I think, robot horses 
to actually do the um, so the, the horses charge. I'm pretty sure those are real horses. So um, what you're hearing there with the, the strings building and building, building is the, the knights charging at the the Scots, and the Scots are standing there with with spears to sort of wait for them. And so you see these horses, like huge number of horses and armed knights, just riding and riding, riding, galloping, getting closer and closer and faster and faster and faster. And then eventually, like you actually have the crash of the two, and like horses hit spears and, and it goes crazy. I'm pretty sure those are like some huge number of robot horses actually hitting the spears, whereas now it would all be animated and all probably look awful. Mm. But then, like, it was all, again, the days of practical effects, yeah. which is so good back then. I know. But it's such an exciting, like, powerful moment of, oh, that's what, like, a knight cavalry charge looked like. Mm. And you can, feel, you can feel it just from that music. Oh, yeah, the, the, definitely the, the, the tension building up. And I guess also when the editing, like, you know, going from yeah. back from, you know, the horses coming and then the, the, the wait, waiting. waiting and stuff and back and forth. And you're just thinking, like, when's it going to come? When's yeah, it gonna, and then, yeah, the impending doom. And, and then yeah. the attack. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that I really love about this is that it, it's everything about, well, there's a lot in here about what makes for good film music because there are so many layers to this as, as a track so you, on the like kind of superficial level you've got like the pacing matching the scene so you've got the the it's getting more and more tense more and more layers like heavier and heavier music just to sort of we're getting closer to the build just mm-hmm. the, the classic old-fashioned build but you also have the sort of the world building aspect so you've got like the celtic instrumentation with the bagpipes and things you've even got like the sort of you were mentioning as we'll listen to it just it then has the, sounded a bit, a bit like a jig like, yeah, an, like irish an irish jig, jig to it so it's got yeah like yeah. a celtic sound like imbued into the action music you also have there's emotion there you can so you've got the emotion of the tension and it's building what, what was interesting um because i was just thinking about it just now how like nowadays a scene like that would be replaced with a lot of percussion mm-hmm. it'd be, yeah it'd be all percussion tribal, tribal type stuff yeah, yeah. whereas here it's quite it's more string and um, more yeah. string based isn't yeah, it? It's strings and woodwinds yeah. and like and like um nat- like um ethnic woodwinds in yeah. this case like bagpipes and various Irish flutes and, and things, yeah. But to build that tension is done through those instrumentation yeah. as opposed to like you know nowadays it would be primarily more quite percussive and yeah. quite ep- more epic and a little bit more mm-hmm. hardcore and aggressive. Definitely. And there's touches of that in this. Like at the beginning there you could hear that sort of very distorted brass and stuff which actually almost like premonitions of the process of the, the brass of yeah of the process sounds and the Brahms from yeah. What, Hans Zimmer. Yeah. yeah, but they're not. But they're just there, kind of at the beginning. They're almost just like as the the horn calls coming from across the across the field. This is like they sound weird because they're from far away. It sounds sort of worldized almost. But then when it actually comes to the real motion, it's yeah, it's it's strings. It's it's playing an emotional cue rather than a purely action. Look how amazing the effects are. We're mm. just providing a beat for them to cut the crazy edits to. But and. You know, you're talking about the editing, but the editing of this scene is nothing compared to like a modern action film, which would be just like cut, fast cut, paced. Cut, 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 yeah, for very Whereas fast paced. Yeah, like a few seconds of horses, a few seconds of scared Scotsman, a few more seconds of horses, people looking a bit brave, a few seconds of horses, somebody crying. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it, it's playing a lot more emotional beats than, oh my God, look how many things we've got moving and exploding at once. Um, kind of. And so I, I really, yeah, like that it provides, as well as the pace to the scene also an emotional quality and ties it into the world it makes it feel medieval and scottish and this could like this music could only go over like a battle of scots versus english people in the 12th century it couldn't be put over any other film whereas say from our mad max episode you could that action music is great action music but could probably go over any scene 
could probably go over this scene as well. Yeah, probably could, but and it wouldn't be as good. <laughs> but you're talking about how you know borrowing ideas. So my little bonus track that I want to talk about, because I think this borrows quite heavily from a much older piece of film music. I am curious as to whether you know this. But do I have to guess now? No, no, no. You don't. You don't have to know. And look, I, I'm also very afraid of sort of assuming that just because you know you've got a bit of Russian heritage, or in fact, ah, flat out Russian. That you're I am there, Russian. You are blood, Russian. You're, full-blooded Russian. <laughs> you're full-blooded, born in Russia. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you know everything that Russian. But because this happens to be a, a, a Russian piece from a Russian film from 1938, and it underscores a scene from actually the same century of a battle between the Teutonic Knights, who were German and the Russian people Okay. in a battle called The Battle of the Ice, which is the name of the track. So this is The Battle on the Ice. And now it starts to build as the, again, similar scene, the knights start to come. It's almost like a train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Jawsness to it as well. Mm. In fact, there's a lot of jaws to it. That's really cool, and you can you can hear already the blueprint of how an action scene will be done. I I love mm-hmm, that totally, yeah. Uh, and that even though it's like from 1938, it it sounds almost modern. Like there is there are definitely old fashioned sounds in it. I was sort of talking last week about you know sounds that you can't really do anymore, but I think that has fewer of them than even in the Omen. Like it almost sounds quite modern i do if you if you take away the choir i yeah. could i think it could easily be used for like any film action action film or like a war film nowadays you yeah know? particularly if it was a medieval war film yeah particularly thing. even if it was maybe paying homage yeah. to that particular era set in the night like during the second world war even the first world war so mm-hmm. you know i know what you mean that it's still it, it stands the test of time yes yeah it does it definitely does and the like the way i think the, the thing about it sounds really modern is the way that it uses percussion and the way that it combines the percussion with particularly strings, and it is still string heavy. Whereas I think the thing that really dates some is where the instrumentation has changed. But because this is still so string and percussion heavy, that that is still very much the modern sound of cinema. It's the ones that are very, very woodwindy that that sound more dated. But also you can tell that it's... 
you can you can tell that it's trying to capture the action. Yeah. Um, and moments of the action. I That's think. That's true. Yeah. Do you it's know less... what I mean? You can almost picture it, even though I haven't seen the film. But you can kind of almost the beats on where it hits. You can kind of. You can see the cuts. Yeah. yeah. You can almost picture like when it's the attack, mm-hmm. or when it's somebody falling, or when it's somebody charging. You know, you、yeah. can almost like. Premeditate what those scenes are. So, yeah, which and I that's really how forward-thinking the film is, as yeah, well as the music. And I think that's really important as when you're writing film music, and that when people haven't seen the film but they listen to the music, that people are able to conjure up those images,、mm. you know, for themselves at least. Yeah, you know. No, I agree. And I mean, this is only going to be like a thirty-second digression, but I wonder how much of that obviously comes from the fact that Prokofiev. Is primarily a ballet composer, so he's used to having to work to action and, and scenes、yeah. rather than、it's、storytelling. At the end of the day, yeah, the physical sc- storytelling was already his thing before he went into film. Whereas a lot of other composers from this era were not coming from ballet; they were coming from just the classical sort of performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah, just actual concert music and things like that. So I think maybe that actually maybe part of a different and why he was able to get this far more physical score when presented with what was, as it turns out. A scene that was going to be replicated many, many times because that scene. I hope you do enjoy watching on YouTube later on tonight.、Mm. It is quite similar to the Braveheart scene, and I think quite similar to a lot of very similar. You know, the people standing up against the you know crazy, crazy force. So I wanted to share that because it, it's just a really cool film music moment. It's one of the first things I learned about when sort of I started formally studying film music. I was like, oh, that's where Braveheart got that idea from. Yeah, no, it's really cool. I really like that. So. On to you. So, is this going to be your one that first made you get into film composition? Yeah, I guess. Well, this is going to be the first film and soundtrack that made me kind of pay attention to the music.、Mm-hmm. Is this the first soundtrack album you bought? No, no, oh no, 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 no. Back in the day, we used to borrow from the library. Of course, okay. So、yeah. actually, like these, like the two soundtracks that I will be talking about are back when we used to borrow them as opposed to having to buy them. Sure. You know. Um, do you remember the time when you know you had to borrow things from the from library? library? Absolutely, yeah, I remember. Films,、that. I mean, like deep, like VHS tapes, CDs, books, and stuff. I bought a lot more, but that's actually purely because I didn't live within an hour and a half of a library. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Fair enough. Well, whereas we did, we were literally fifteen minute walk away from、yeah. the library, so it made sense for us to yeah, like these urban urban elites. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, like I obviously I. Most people might probably expect that I will be giving Danny Elfman a mention, and that I was expecting Danny Elfman and or Electronica to to feature highly in the in the list <laughs> from, from from you.、Um, But is this going to be a Danny Elfman? The first one will be a Danny Elfman、um, soundtrack. Although it was really really hard to pick one because、mm. I mean, here's a little story that when we actually first came to the UK to London,、uh, I remember my dad bought four four VHSs. That actually started my sort of musical, I guess,、Ooh. training or you know just awareness、mm-hmm. of Danny Elfman, I guess.、Right. But、um, one of them was Jurassic Park.、Okay. Then it was the making of Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Jurassic、why. Park was massive in the nineties. No, I know, but I don't know why he had to buy the making of Jurassic、yeah. Park. But anyway, he did. Then the Lion King, and then the fourth one was Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh wow. And I remember I did not speak English, a word of English、yeah. whatsoever. So I basically learnt English, or at least to even sing English,、mm-hmm. by watching Nightmare Before Christmas over and over and over again. Wow! But that's not the film that I'm going to be talking about in terms of what kind of 
propelled me to yeah. becoming a film composer. Okay. But it was just, it's, again, that was the first film that got mm-hmm. me into. Um, so you then liked it when, because Nightmare for Christmas then kind of had like an echo boom where it became almost like a little sort of like cultural icon in itself. Yeah, but I'm also quite surprised that my dad thought that he that we would like it because it was pretty dark. I mean, I watched yeah. it recently and it's still pretty dark. Yeah. Film yeah, for kids and stuff. But it was kind of like on the my journey of becoming a sort of outsider, you know, mm-hmm. into the alternative, unusual things. Yeah. Well, that's very much its place. It's like a gateway drug to the alternative. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, obviously... Good choice, though, those films. I, I love I all three of those. Lion King was probably the second soundtrack I ever owned, and Jurassic oh. Park was very close to making my list of three. Mm. And then... Obviously, in Russia, we used to watch Batman Returns a lot. That mm-hmm. was actually um, always played during our sort of New Year's Christmas time, right. you know, era. Time. And so, again, I was used to listening to that mm-hmm. soundtrack a lot. Mm-hmm. But the one that actually made me really listen to the soundtrack was, yep, you guessed it, <laughs> you're, you're mimicking the fingers. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's Edward Scissorhands. Nice. Um, yeah. So, it was just, yeah, it was, it was a very... Oh God, I can't remember how old I was. It must have been really, really young when, when we, because we watched it when we were in London. Mm. And even back then, when I was young, I understood that this was no ordinary film. It yeah. wasn't for the mainstream audience. Like, it was not a typical Disney film, you know, yeah. your typical wholesome family movie. And that's what I really loved about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the quirkiness, the sort of the dark, gothic quality to it. And obviously, Johnny Depp. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and it felt like an outsider film that really resonated with me I guess on a more personal level because my family and I were I guess we felt a little bit like outsiders yeah, coming into like to of the course. UK from, from Russia so having that sort of feeling kind of really helped me relate to the film I guess in some ways and of course the music was just so captivating and it was very characteristic and it's and what i mean by that is that it has qualities and the signature tones and instrumentation that you know i previously heard in batman returns you know when i was in russia mm-hmm. um that kind of i guess in some ways reminded me of home okay. in some ways or you know or being in that scenario of being at home and watching that film at christmas or like our new year sort of seasonal celebrations there was a familiarity to it because it was such a magical soundtrack you know with the boy choirs and the melodies and the motifs were so catchy and simple and you know it was we need to play some i know i know and it was just so i can can pretty much hum it now as well (laughs) because that's what i loved about the the soundtrack the, the fact that it was so beautiful and so simple that you can basically hum to it here's the main titles
Yeah, it has this beautiful waltz. Yeah. You know, it's done in that sort of waltzy style. and I can see what you mean by it has a certain Russian homely quality to it as well. There is a certain, like, nutcrackeriness to it as well. There's, there's a Tchaikovsky quality to the orchestration, I think. Well, Danny Elfman, is, he does have um, Russian roots. Yeah, you mentioned in the, in the Batman episode. Yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think you can hear it there with, yeah, with the use of like, the Celeste and the bells. and the. Well, Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky were quite primarily his... Influences um, as well as Burnham, um, Herman, Herman, of course, and, yeah. <laughs> Burnham, Burnham, <laughs> yeah. Um, Herman, and yeah, and you know that really stuck with me because you know it's inspired me as a composer to find melodies that are quite like lullaby-like, you know, mm. very similar to his and catchy with a hint of melancholy to it. Yeah, and you know, I mean, as a, as a whole, the score does evoke feelings. Obviously, everybody, I'm sure everybody knows the story of Edward Scissorhands about this isolated man, you know, who has um, Scissorhands. Scissors <laughs> and he gets, I guess, in some ways, he, I know, I guess in some ways abducted, mm. to be honest, and then brought down to the suburbs and to kind of be forced upon these, like, neighborhood wholesome people to kind of live among them. And then gradually, like, because of his unusual, unique himself being he just it, everything spirals out of control yeah you know and it kind of showcases human humanity at their worst you know how you know they're not able to accept unusual people you mm-hmm. know when they f- when they don't understand them and they fear them and then the next thing they end up doing is putting, trying to kill them and stuff it was a bit of a theme of films it's sort of in that 80s and 90s era wasn't it it's sort of like the unusual thing emerges in suburbia and suburbia has to deal with it. So it's because the same sort of story as E.T. Yeah. Encino Man. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just sort of like this, yeah, this like idea of something odd comes into the suburbs, which are all meant to be all very orderly and conservative and, you know, family oriented and stuff. And it, it throws everything out of whack. And then. Yeah. It disrupts the equilibrium. Be... Exactly. Which is the same thing that Stranger Things plays on. Mm-hmm. Is, is that same sort of theme, although they're at small town rather than suburbia. But yeah, particularly the sort of suburbia version. And Winona Ryder's always there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she attracts it or yeah. she falls in love with yeah. it or something. <laughs> um, what so, is it with that woman? <laughs> I know. It's just, she just attracts att- She just tra- attracts um, destruction, doesn't she? She does. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdos as well. But yeah, so the, the score itself always evokes feelings of isolation, you know, being in your old bubble, I guess, because... Mm-hmm. You know, particularly when the music is, when you hear the music of the suburbia, mm. you know, it's very different to music of Edward and when he's in his castle mm-hmm. or when it's his theme. Can we have an example of some music from suburbia? Yeah. So here Because I will confess, I've only seen this film a couple of times. The last time would have been 10 years ago. Oh, this is just terrible. <laughs> Seriously. Like, and you call yourself a film composer. <sighs> well, this is your Christmas movie to watch then. Yeah. Uh, Noted. (laughs) (laughs) So this is called Ballet de Suburbia.
so American. I like this. It's like it's Leroy Anderson. Are you familiar mm. with Leroy Anderson? No. Oh wow, yeah. It's it's so Leroy Anderson. Leroy Anderson did um. There's a pizza player all around Christmas called Sleigh Bells, which okay. has that kind of a sound. Of boop, 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 boop. That's sort of happy. It's almost like happy-go-lucky time. Yeah, so. and just and that particularly that instrumentation of the very sort of boppy pizzicatos and the muted trumpets and everything. He wrote another piece called The Typewriter, where literally like there's a typewriter playing the whole way along. Ah. Like, incessantly happy and but just such an American sort of all American kind of sound so I love that it's that but it's it's like a demented version because it's, it's Elfman so nothing's ever straight exactly yeah it's a <laughs> little bit a skew exactly um, what's it's interesting is it's also like because he did the soundtrack not the soundtrack but he did the main titles for Desperate Housewives as well which has oh, a I similar he, yeah. yeah he has that sort of a similar flair to it yeah and The Simpsons and Same. The Simpsons, yeah. All American, but just a little off. off. Yeah, yeah, just a bit crazy. I mean, The Simpsons has that tritone in it and stuff. Sorry, that's for the music nerds out there. I'm not even going to go there. But yeah, yeah, to do like a cartoon series of the tritone, crazy, crazy, good fun. Love, love Danny Elfman. Yeah. So just in generally, like it's just great storytelling. You know, it this music wears its heart on its sleeve. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's so romantic at times. Like particularly like the ice dance, which is we hear a snippet yeah. here. So it's very magical, and it all, yeah. it has a very sort of it's Christmassy. It, yeah, it has a sort of wintry feel to it, doesn't it? It's Be- cold, yeah. yeah. It's cold but sweet and warming, and yeah, it's like you, you you're sitting inside, you're warm and lovely, and you're staring at icicles like just or like snowflakes falling. Yeah, but there is some sort of melancholy to it as well. I think there always is for that sort of cold music. Wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't you say it was the same when we were talking about the um, uh, the March of the Penguins? That, that that cold sound is always a sense of like sadness mixed with beauty. Is mm. always is almost like the formula I would say for that cold sound. Do you, you agree or? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think in terms of like for Danny Elfman, it was just just because obviously the characterization of yeah. like the characters of it's almost it's the same thing of star-crossed lovers, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to get together and then trying to fight against the odds, mm-hmm. you know, which is actually quite funny because I watched the film yesterday and I realized that they only kiss once in the whole film really? right at the end. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's like all this buildup of their passion of like mm-hmm. the sort of internal passion that, you know, the music communicates so well. It's a sort of tragedy, you know, mm. and like their torturous harmonic journey, you know, and it's and then it climaxes and then. It's just so beautiful, yeah. and you know, it takes you on this journey, you know, on this like fable with like very clever and delicate melodies. Mm-hmm. They embody his like Edward's discovering his downfall, you know, with beautiful sort of choral elements that never are restrained. I guess. Yeah, and I like that unrestrained quality of Elfman. I think that's actually a really good way of just of describing him. Sometimes of 
And actually, it's it's not that dissimilar from Horner in that both of them are composers who are not afraid to just let go. Yeah. Just just let the emotional thing run wild. I don't care if it's going to be schmaltzy. I don't care if it's going to be seen as weird. I This is the feel that this scene needs, so I'm just going to run with it. And I do feel like we don't get that anymore no. in soundtracks. I mean, the, the song that we just played, The Ice Dance, mm. everybody probably would have heard now that song because it's been overused in advertisements so much and I hate the fact that it's been overused you know it's been used by British Gas by McDonald's and to the point where it's so saturated it almost because it's that particular melody and song has become so commercialized mm-hmm. you know it's like it's, it lost its attachment yeah it's almost it doesn't sound as unique as it used as it it should be and I feel like we need more soundtracks like that I think right now it's been so overwhelmed with this sort of textural textural mm-hmm. drone or music where it's, it's so under the layer that you almost it's just an almost it's non-existent buried, yeah. and just I, a buried feel yeah because I know that's you know I think once you mentioned I and mean, we were talking about Batman um uh, podcast in 1989 when you said that at times Danny Elfman almost did Mickey a lot of Mickey Mousing yeah. you know so, but yeah. and there is a lot of Mickey Mousing um, elements in this particular soundtrack as well but I think it, it gives that yeah. its quality yeah. I think it needs that I think sometimes music needs to be able to kind of tell you or guide you what you need to what is happening in the scene without it visually being shown like the music needs to tell you that something creepy is going to happen like oh when she opens the gate is it going to be something like you know this leads you through yeah like the scene when um peggy um who's the mother uh, um of winona the writer's character when she goes up to the horn to the castle on the hill um right at the beginning of the film and and it's quite scary music you know thinking oh my gosh she's going up into this haunted looking castle and then she goes up to the gates and it's all covered up with like dead leaves or dead um, weeds and stuff yep. and then you think like oh my god is she is she going to open up it's all something's going to jump at her and then when she opens up and then the music changes and it's this beautiful almost lullaby like because she, she opens up and she comes into, into the world into this new world of like a garden mm-hmm. that Edward created you know all these like um, unusual shapes and topiaries and stuff and, yeah. like yeah he basically created his own garden mm. you know and just the the wonderment that she felt of like you know oh she's like oh so beautiful and yeah. you know that the music really highlighted that wonderment and yeah. amazement and uh, it's just positivity. It was the same thing we were talking about last week with the Omen about how rare it is to have music go from these days go from negative to happy. Mm, mm. So often you often enough you get the one that goes from oh it's a it's a kind scene but oh something ominous comes in but so rare do you get the the reversal of tension 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 release mm. and, and release into like wonderment like sort of whiplash into beauty. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like it. Yeah, and so for me, like it again, it was the one album. It was one of the albums where, when I listened to it, I could see the film. I could replay the film over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I think the simplicity of the melodies kind of—it's something that really kind of dug, dug in. Yeah, both of our original ones are similar in ways, and that they're definitely of the era where people demanded the hummable theme, the, the memorable uh, theme, expressive that you could, for it to be as expressive expressive as possible, and memorable, mm. and something that you would you would remember and you could rehum to someone three years later. Yeah, because I guess back in those days, people were still relying on people to buy the soundtracks as well. Yeah, you know, which much. that made money. Yeah, you know, it was very much a part of it back then. Yeah, beautiful. Shall we move on to our next one? Yes, Tristan. Tell me, what is the next? soundtrack that you want to talk about that's shaped you as a composer yeah so this is an interesting one so, so this is a soundtrack that 
I actually, no, actually, I do listen to it quite a lot. I wouldn't necessarily think of it as one that influences my style that much, but was a soundtrack that when I first heard it, it opened my eyes to a new thing that soundtrack music could do. And that's because it's a video game soundtrack. Ooh. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why video games is amongst the list of things that we can talk about on this show. And in fact, I think that makes it officially the first video game soundtrack we will. Yeah, tell, tell me, I'm intrigued. Is it a game that I played? It's possible. Have you played a game called Shadows of the Colossus? No, I haven't. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> is it like an RPG? More or less. Okay. So Shadows of the Colossus is a Japanese game. This was one of the premier games of the PlayStation 2 era. And basically, in Shadows of the Colossus, it's sort of like big sweeping sort of Japanese epic type thing. So you're this little character and a horse with a, who rides around on a horse, and you're in this ancient sort of landscape. You're the only human, for want of a better word, and you just, you keep riding around and then you discover these gigantic, well, the, the, the Colossuses, these like gigantic, almost robot-like sort of dark grey creatures they seem to be almost mechanical or almost magical some of them are almost like dinosaurs some of them fly around some of them swim some of them are just like traditional sort of boom 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 stompy stompy dinosaurs and it's quite an abstract sort of a game but you wind up fighting all of these things and you never really know why (laughs) so you're not entirely sure whether you're actually like you know, heroically trying to save the world from these horrible creatures, or if you are, in fact, like a complete twat who's wiping out this great ancient race. <laughs> so but you, you never fully know. But on the way, you it's, it's this sort of phenomenal sort of little sprawling story that goes over many, many hours uh, where you, among other things, have a very strong relationship with your horse who just, like, rides with you and has a personality of its own. It's visually stunning. Mm. The mechanics are phenomenal. What year was it made? Was it released then? So it came out in 2005, which is sort of like mid to late era of the of the PlayStation 2. Cool. Well, then what, what was it about the music that kind of struck you? Well, I shall play you some. This is the essentially opening title called Prologue, The Ancient Land.
It doesn't really sound like a game music. What That's you, what, what would you say it sounds like? I oh, know it just sounds like an instrumental, like yeah, like a beautiful sort of instrumental sort of thing. And this is in a so this is in a game that is almost like a meditation type yeah. music. You yes, know? which is actually a, quite a game trope in itself because. You play your fan games for 30 hours or more, so they often need to be a little bit more background and meditative in their quality. And this is a very meditative sort of game because there's almost no dialogue. It's quite exotic as well. Yeah, that, that's, that's a huge part of it. So this is as it's, it's sort of starting off and it's sort of just, it's, this is very much a show-don't-tell game. There's almost no words, almost no dialogue. You just sort of are. You sort of travel around and you explore and you just sort of learn the world by seeing it and observing it and then sort of you move along and it gu- it sort of very gently nudges you and guides you in certain directions and then things will happen and you just sort of like roll along. You, sort of, you very much experience this game as it goes along and this exoticism helps create that sense of adventure of I want to know more mm. about this place. But So this is the general aesthetic, but this is the reason why I am very, very fond of this soundtrack. So this track is called... Counterattack Battle with the Colossus. So this is one of the many sort of battle musics because you battle against lots of different colossuses or colossi, however mm-hmm. you want to do it, and each one has its own music that you play. So this is one of them. how it has like those different variations of the same loop you know and the melody and stuff funny you should mention that because that it gets a really epic kind of a feel it feels like epic battle music that bit definitely felt sound, sounded like a game's music like yeah. during an epic yeah. fight scene yeah or even like a movie scene with a sort of mm. an epic fight but more no, no, game no, no, but I know it's more game it's weird it's like how you can kind of distinct between a battle film mm-hmm. uh, in, in the film and versus a game like I felt like this is it, I don't I can't explain it but it yeah and probably the repetitions the rapid repetitions of the it. repetitions and I don't know probably also the um, probably the quality of the instrumentation is probably more electronic, more mm-hmm. you know yeah, sound about. library as opposed to if it was a film. A film would probably get your real strings, real drums mm-hmm. and stuff. You know, I do yeah. feel like maybe I don't know. I might be wrong. You know, mm. this. I'm not sure if this is recorded with a real orchestra or not, actually. But then that's what I mean. Sometimes that yeah. that's, that's the distinction. It's processed to a point that you can't tell. Almost. Yeah. The thing that I realise is, is the way that it, it, it grows and it flows. Because obviously, like... Well, of course, it has to flow and grow. Because especially if you're fighting against a monster, you know, it has to kind of showcase, you know, how the amount of um, life that you're taking, mm-hmm. getting, t- you know, kicking its butt yeah. up. 
Yeah, and it doesn't know how long it's going to take. Yeah. So, so these battles against these, these colossi can take 15, 20 minutes. And they'll go through sort of multiple phases. So, like, you might start out, like, riding around on riding around its feet on a horse, like, shooting arrows at it. And then it might get a little bit hurt. And then you'll, like, climb on, like, jump off your horse onto it. And then you'll start, like, climbing up the, the, the colossus. And eventually you have to get to, like, this, like, secret glowing spot and then, like, sort of stab it right in the spot. So you, you'll have this whole sort of, like, journey up the, up the colossus, sort of getting higher and higher and higher. And every different area of the colossus you've got to, like, battle it in a different way because when you get up height could start slapping you with its hands mm. whereas when the ground it was probably trying to stomp on you and so the the fight changes and the music has to change along with the fight and this game in particular was one of the first ones I'd really seen where it had that sort of scope of music because it is even though as you say it has that sort of sampling kind of sound it is still very orchestral action driven music but it felt like it was exactly written for the game that I was playing because it changed at exactly the right moments and it just segued from section to section. And it felt, it, it was one of the first games that I played that really gave you that feeling of this is like an epic thing. I guess and it's an I'm ongoing it. thing as well. Yeah. Um, game, there's always a certain genres of games that play with that line of you get to feel like you're playing in an, you're the hero in an epic movie. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the first ones that really kind of got that for me. It was because this You felt music, like you were in that world. Yeah. Okay. And this music really sold it for me because okay. it felt like it was... Uh, it spoke to you Yeah, as and a it was the soundtrack a for player. my particular journey rather than being... It's the soundtrack of the game that happens to be in the background while I am doing it. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Whereas, yeah, some other set games you play along is like, okay, well, that's just the sound of this level. This felt like, no, no, that is the sound of me striving against this huge creature that I'm I'm battling against. It was basically like it's your theme. Yeah, it was, you know? yeah, it was my theme. And yeah, so I, I, I adored that of it. So yeah, I, I really like this one. It's a slightly offbeat one. The composer is Ko Otani. He's a, a very good Japanese composer. I've heard this one performed live. It's beautiful performed live. It's a cool. phenomenal score. Amazing. Excellent. Well, yeah. yeah, well, I'll check it out as well then. You know, um, I just want to let everybody know that we will be including our Spotify links of our playlists of yeah. some of some of these songs and tracks that we're talking about. Our favourite tracks from all yeah. of these films, games, albums, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So there'll be like a... We'll combine them all together into one big happy Spotify playlist with all of our favourites. So, cool. That was really interesting. It's nice to kind of hear that it's not all film-based, that there are actually other sort of mediums that have inspired us you know so cool well moving on to me yes it's a 90s film with a huge cast of gorgeous men right (laughs) no can't think of it and um and the theme is vampires as well. Oh, am I, are we about to hear some harpsichord? Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, it's on. Do you know? Have you have you seen the film Interview, Interview with the, the Vampire? Yeah, Interview with the Vampire um, by Elliot Goldenthal. Yeah. The soundtrack. Have you have you paid much attention to the soundtrack? 
And so I, I do like this film. Again, I've probably seen it twice a few years ago, or quite a few years ago now. I haven't seen it, I haven't seen it recently. Gosh, I feel like I'm the only person who actually like watches f- a film over and over again after if I really, really like it. No, I, feel I, like... I always have to watch a new one. Also, I play games. These things take 30 or 40 hours, <laughs> or if not 120. <laughs> Fair enough. D- Fair enough. Different priorities. I get it. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, interview with the Vampire. So I li- I'm really glad that you've gone with this one, actually. Me too, because when I when I really had to think about going f- as far back as possible to you know the music that I grew up listening to, you know, again, this was another album that we borrowed from the library, and I remember my mum listening to it, and obviously we watched the film beforehand as well, you know, me watching a film at like when I was like nine, ten years old, mm-hmm. even though this is like a fifteen, yeah, you know, I'll say it's kind of like it's following on that trend of me watching films way before. Your my time, time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, precocious little Ella. Just, you know, I'm just I always wanted to grow up much faster, yeah, or something. Yeah. You know, I guess I matured a lot faster as well. And I remember my mom using the soundtrack to actually um, put together um, her own soundtrack for her fashion show. Oh, wow, because um, she did a fashion show like I think it was for university or college, whereby she the theme was. Um, Josephine, who was the wife of Napoleon, um, Napoleon. Okay. yeah. So there was a French theme, and okay. And some of the music is quite French and classical, and because it's, it's New Orleans, yeah. yeah. And it's and when also it's set in Paris as oh, well, okay. near the end, because they yeah. do go to Paris at the end of the film, and it's very romantic and classical, yeah, a little bit deranged as well at times. But anyway, so that was my sort of introduction of what how music can actually be, where music can be applied mm-hmm. and how it can be used to tell a story. And it kind of made me listen to it a lot m- deeper. And some, So this is your introduction to musical storytelling? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. More so to... No, I always... Like, Edward Scissorhands mm. was an introduction to storytelling as well and A Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. But this was more of using existing music and putting it onto a storytelling of your, of your oh. own story, maybe. Okay, yes. Do you see what I mean? Because yeah, Like adapting it to a different purpose and exactly. telling another story with... Yeah. And I just... I felt like this music on its own is just so... It's so tragic and so beautiful and it's just it evokes so many emotions and it's it really separates itself from your typical film mainstream film music mm. you know because of the um orchestra the instrumentation and again it also introduced me to Elliot Goldenthal as mm. well mm-hmm. as a composer because I know that afterwards he did before actually this film he did Alien 3, Three. Yeah. which I listened to it and it, it has that quality, that sort of signature style that he carried over to Interview with the Vampire with the brass. Mm. And, and and that's something, again, I really liked when I picked or, you know, I chose to listen to like Danny Elfman and Elliot Goldman, the fact that they both had very significant styles that yeah. identified them, um, that made me feel like, okay, I really need to, that I needed to apply the same to my own composition, my own way of composing music you know i need to be able to find instrumentation of use of you know melodies that make me separate myself from everybody else yeah um if i was compiling a list i will say of composers like of the best composers that nobody talks about 
Elliot Goldenthal would be right at the top of that list. I know. It's a shame you don't really hear from him much now. No, but he's phenomenal. He is, when you honestly. get one of his scores, like, oh. Or you, when you watch one of the movies with his scores, like, oh, who wrote this? This is amazing. This is from the 90s. I should remember who wrote the right, score for this. Yeah. And you get to the end, you're like, oh, it's Elliot Goldenthal. Mm. Nobody talks about that. He's, yeah. Him he's amazing. Mark Isham is the other one in that same in that same genre for me. They're like, what's the word when they're like underrated? Is it? Well, yeah, underrated, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> a really good way of putting it it's just yeah there's they put great work out there and nobody talks about them but what's interesting is that elliot um golden he actually replaced um the original composer for this film who was john fenton a few weeks prior to the film's opening so he was actually working to a tight deadline to compose yeah so i think he had probably like what five weeks or something like that you know and to be able to come come up with this amazing s- score in a sh- such a short space of time, oh my god! Mm-hmm. Like no wonder it was nominated for an Academy Award, but obviously it lost to The Lion King, of course. Yeah, fair enough. You know, um, but yeah. So anyway, so the music was written for like a full orchestra with a choir, and it's got you know special emphasis on strings, piano, and the occasional sort of p- period specific um, instruments like the harpsichord, and. And there's another sort of string instrument that was used called viola de gamba. Yeah. Viola de gamba, yep. There's a real sort of powerful sense of gothic romance and heartbreak, which is a recurring thing throughout the score, you know, that you hear. So one of the, there's going to be a few tracks that I'll play very briefly just because I just want to highlight how much I love them and how much, you know, it just speaks to the characters it's and the things. heartbreak in this episode. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. It's just, it's, I don't know why is that. Why is that, Chris? And why are we talking about so much heartbreak and pain know. and it's suffering? <laughs> are we just sadistic? Maybe. Maybe. But it, this seems to have been what, what, <laughs> what triggered our childhoods was, was heartbreak music. Well, they're strong emotions. I think when you were an adolescent, which all, these all fell within oh, our yeah, adolescence, they're things that appeal to you. Yeah, well, puberty hits. Yeah. You know, and then like that, you feel like the whole world is against you and you know, you need music that kind of highlights your... Speaks to you. And, yeah. And, and like, for us, you it feel was like film really, music yeah. and that's why we're here. <laughs> Damn it. Right, so the first track I'll play is called Liberami.
Yeah. Wow. It's just. <laughs> I think we're both are like. Oh. oh. <laughs> so uh, there's, so there's a beautiful. few things. Yeah, it, it is. It is. So there's a few things I want to say about that. One. How modern does that sound with the the raw string sounds? That even it's though it's 1995, like, that's yeah. when the film was released. Yeah, it's like 23, 24 years ago, and yet, like that sound, you could have in a film today, mm. and you'd be like, "Oh, it's just so on trend." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so haunting with the yeah. choirs. Like it was a boys' choir, yeah. you know. The other thing I'll say <laughs> right on that point is choral music in films, people, very, very rare and hard to do right. And, and hard to do right, and yet. If you're listening to our, our show as like a broad survey of film music, you would think that it dominates because we, we may quite rapidly run out of films with choral music in them because we are just going with all of them. We, but that's been... good. We're highlighting that actually, you know, here's examples, great examples of when they're done right yeah. and different and varieties as well, you know. Yeah, and that boys' choir, that religious boys' choir, it is stunning that sound and yeah that bit in the middle right at the end like where I showed you like when it kind of goes high I don't know what you call it but it was just that that always hits me it just really pulls me when I hear that even though it's so far 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 back um, you could almost miss it but when I do hear it I'm just like oh that's beautiful so what you call that that is a descant line. A discount line. Descant line. Oh, okay. So it's like a high suspension that, that goes above the harmony and it sort of climbs above and it soars over the top. And this is the little bit that I mean. So here's a little snippet of it. And so the little bit of trivia about that. So the descant, it's a, it's sort of a trope, as it were, from sacred music, from like music that you would get into in churches. Mm-hmm. And so like a really good example of that is the Allegri Miserere, which I will play now. So, part of the reason why you use this stuff is there's this psychological effect that they discovered quite early on in music, that when you hear something really, really high like this, it just sort of like soars over the top, people just naturally look upwards. Mm. It's just a psychological response we have. You just sort of hear it and you just sort of like look upwards. And then you imagine that in like one of these sort of churches like sort of these because this is church music this would be the choir out the front the boys choir and you sort of imagine this and churches have those beautiful like huge windows and beautiful ceilings and stuff so it, it's all about this creating sort of like religious euphoria moment where the the, the congregation is sort of like looks up and they'll, they'll see the sun and the like you know jesus in the windows mm. and the, the, the roof and everything and it just it's about creating that just sort of moment of just complete god euphoria mm. basically and yes yeah, so that that is the point of the descant line and they are so beautiful and so stunning and so incredibly difficult to do i um, know he did it very well yeah 
But what I like about it is that fact that it kind this particular soundtrack really gives the vampires. I mean, obviously, when you watch the beginning of the film, you don't know that the film is going to be about the vampires, vampires. But until obviously the title comes in interview with the vampire. <laughs> yeah, the <kid> away. <laughs> yeah, you may have seen it on the poster on the way in. <laughs> but what makes it stand out from all the other your typical horror films that feature vampires? It gives the characters a more sophisticated sound. Portraying the vampires as more cultured, you know, sophisticated, tortured souls, rather than your sort of your typical long-fingered, pointy-fang monsters, you know, and but it's still epic yes. in some ways to it, and it's just yeah, I, I absolutely I adore this soundtrack. Have we got another track? Oh, I've got a few, few more. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just have to. This is going to be probably my high point of talking about in the podcast. Let's you do know. It. So then the next track that I will talk about is called "Born into Darkness." So it starts off with Louis' story, um, how at 24 he was a master of a plantation in the New World slash New Orleans, but lost his wife and child to childbirth, and this their deaths broke him, and so he fell into severe depression, and in the end lost the will to live but did not have the courage to commit suicide. And so he put himself into situations to um, get be killed, oh, okay. um, either in taverns or ultimately, you know, inviting Lestat, the vampire, to take the bait and, yeah, kill him. Or at least give him a taste of death and then to question him and ask him, like, are you sure you want this mm-hmm. still? So, yeah, it begins with a rolling harp before quickly becoming a very longing string lament, you know, illustrating the sense of tragic loss in Louis' life, you know, his suffering of losing his wife and child. And then it kind of counterbalances this beautiful, if a little depressing um, tonality and then it develops into this great wild and vivid and I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie it really scared me you know when it kind of goes with the, t- the stats attack yeah um, I know let's play it first and then I'll talk about
point when I was young, I was actually I was afraid to f- listening. I always had to skip forward that part because you didn't want to hear the sting. I didn't want to hear the sting because also you, at times I didn't I didn't know when to expect it, and they would always jerk me. You know, yeah, you're right. It 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 hides its its timing so well that you just you never quite. But ready. when it attacks, it really rips into you. You know, obviously, like in the actual film, like when um, Tom Cruise's character Lestat actually bites into Brad Pitt's neck, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, so it's like full on. Ellen, it's a little wistful moment right there. <laughs> I was going to make a bit of a joke there, but um, yeah, it kind of went on my head. <laughs> <laughs> Started thinking about other yeah. things. But anyway, so yeah, it was very, the sounds are very, the collision of those sounds were so impressive and disturbing in parts as well. And it's, yeah, it's the, very scary score, particularly that part. And, you know, the tension building and, yeah, it's like those fiendish brass mm. coming in and it's just, and then the crescendos, like these big, enormous crescendos coming in as well. And film score that really turns directions quickly, that just can suddenly, like, chase a scene or just lead a scene, in fact, emotionally in an entirely new direction in a split second mm-hmm. it's yeah it, and it's a lost art you don't get it anywhere near as much no. anymore and that is a shame and we love these 90s movies and and earlier well one day maybe quality. we can bring that back oh, i hope so along with obviously the choir <laughs> yeah oh yeah definitely have to bring the choir we can try a variety of choirs like mixed mm-hmm. choirs as yeah. well as you know yeah you can Mix experiment it up. of course yeah. so the next track is the one it will just talk briefly it's called Lestat's Recitative. Anyways, I love that song. Uh, I, I love that track because it's so sexy. Yeah. It's so seductive. And obviously it's meant to illustrate um, Lestat's character very well. Um, you know, it has that sort of playfulness. And I think the harpsic- the use of the harpsichord really works. I don't think you would have had the same effect if you used a piano. No. Because th- I find that the, the clarity of the harpsichord just makes it sound much more elegant and charming. And, you know, as I said, it really articulates his Lestat's character perfectly as being this obnoxious, alluring and very vindictive. And bear in mind, he is a snob at the end of the day. And like the harpsichord sound is, is meant to be, it's snobbish. It's more formal and precise. And because it's, you know, the sort of plucking element to it, you know, so again, perfect characterization for this character. And yeah, it's just, I, you know, if there's a sense of who has a harpsichord, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. So I really, yeah, I think again, it's one of those great themes for a character and great um, articulation, you know, uh, representation of the character as well. This particular track plays in two separate scenes. The first scene is when um, Brad Pitt's character Louis is in bed, like recovering from a cold after um, Lestat 
tried to kill him mm -hmm. and he basically seduces him and to like you know i'm gonna give you a choice i never had mm -hmm. and oh, yeah, yeah. yeah and then the second time that it's played like the continuation of it is when um lestat and louis are in they're renting this place somewhere in New Orleans and they've got two prostitutes. I mean, one is already killed by Lestat and the, the other one, Lestat, is playing with her. Mm -hmm. And he's obviously playing with Louis, you know, trying to get him to kill her and to kind of succumb to his sort of predatorial instincts and just, just kill her. Mm -hmm. Louis, just like, you know, just mm -hmm. accept just that you're a vampire. Yeah. yeah, and her suffering, as he says. And again, it's that musical sort of quality of him seducing and, you know, trying to get him into think into his own way you know of there's it's quite dark yeah. and quite <laughs> depressive you know and it's quite heavy and you can almost feel that sort of battle internal battle with louis trying to combat his trying to retain his humanity but at the same time having to accept that you know he needs to feed on blood in order to survive mm -hmm. you know so it's just it's, i like that sort of internal fight that you can kind of hear um and then the next track is one of my favorite tracks because I'm oh, it's just yeah. Yeah. It's called Claudia's Allegro. So, yeah. What do you think of that? I love I love how much sort of 
oh, like romantic sort of tumult there is in that. This is really, it's old. It's it's old fashioned. It's it's, it's very old fashioned, but also quite avant garde yeah. because it's well, very. It's, and it's got the yeah the extended techniques like slapping of instruments and things like that. But but within this very sort of yeah like florid. I just I love this music because it's so unpleasant to hear in some ways, mm-hmm. and because it's so emotionally driven, it sounds hysterical. Yeah. You know, and furious and perfect fitting for the scene, you know, because it shows off Claudia's mental breakdown, I guess. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the point where she realizes that, you know, although her mind matures, you know, she gets older, you know, and she will continue to age, but she will always remain in a child's body. You know, and in the books, it's meant to be a five-year-old's body. I think in the film, it's probably more like a little bit... Eight, 10, oh, yeah, eight to yeah. ten and stuff. Because yeah. I know that Kirsten Dunstan's like when she was hired for the film, she was eleven. But they tried the makeup deliberately made her look a lot younger. So I would say probably about maybe eight to ten, maybe. So she'll never become a woman. She'll never fulfill her desires, or she'll never come into her own sexuality. You know. So bear in mind, like at this at this mm. point of the film, probably about thirty years has gone by now. Yeah. So she's probably in her sort of like. If she had grown up, yes. she would be in her maybe like late, early early 40s probably. Yeah, sure. and Getting a bit bored of being an eight-year-old then. Well, just, you know, imagine if you have all this knowledge and you kind of are aware of all these other women around you and, you know, having their own sexuality, you know, you're going to get urges, <laughs> yeah, okay? Yeah, fair enough. So, um, because at near the end of the track, you know, there is, when there's that conversation between her and Louis, you know, there is a hint of a romantic relationship or at least a love between them, you mm-hmm. know, in the track, um, you know, where he tells her that you see that woman you'll never become her. You will never grow old. You'll never you'll never get sick and you'll always be this way. And this is the clip that I'm talk referring to. Yeah, it's got that nostalgia. Yeah, you're right. It has that nostalgia and it has that sort of love, sort of romantic sort of yeah. longing to it. Yeah, as a lyrical longing kind of a sound to it. Absolutely. I think I just love the instrumentation, you yeah. know, how it just, it really is very abrupt and it's very unsettling, you know. It's just, it really kind of throws you off. It's like every, it kind of hits all the right points of when she cuts her hair and then she goes, she runs off almost like a spoiled yeah. brat. Yeah, yeah. And then she screams when her hair grows back. And then when the brass comes in, and it's almost like her fury, her yes. anger. And it's just like, you know, which one of you did it? Which one of you made me the way I am? And I just like, it's... I uh, miss brass being used like that. I know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I do. I do too. Because I think it's a very, it's a beautiful, it's a great instrument that can be used so well to demonstrate so much emotion, you know, when you're playing with anger, for mm. instance. Very few composers, I think, know how to use brass well. Yeah. So I just felt like, you know, it's, a, it's just perfect cohesion of visual sound and the characters, internal communication in the scene. So, yeah. It's phenomenal. The, the way it clicks into all of the emotional turns whilst – and the, the way it manages to do that despite being over the top as well. Like that is the part of it that you wouldn't get in a film now, that it is quite oblique, almost excessive music but it fits the scene so well. You don't have to be scared to keep it under under the levels of everything. There's something quite modern about it. Yeah, yeah. Even definitely. though it's set in the period time. It's got that very romantic era violin, like sort of almost like almost Mendelssohn-y type violin bit through the middle, which which gives it a period quality. But the actual orchestration itself is it's small and film music-y, which is what 
make because it feels like it's a very small orchestra, which is what gives it that sparseness. Mm. Uh, and then in the production, that sounds modern. Yeah, mm. completely agree. And then the final one is just a little snippet. It's called yeah. Santiago's Waltz. It's when um, oops, oopsie daisy, I got <laughs> too excited. <laughs> it's um when Brad when Le, when Louis meets Santiago in Paris, mm-hmm. um under the bridge, and they have that sort of mirror moments mm-hmm. um, where they introduce each other and then Santiago kind of goes into the whole, you know, sort of mocking Louis, you know, doing a bit of a ballet, you know, and doing a bit of a Fred Astaire element as well, you know, when he goes, when he goes like dancing on, on the ceiling and yeah. So here it is. You know, it's classical with hints of madness. Yeah, it feels almost like it could have been Danny Elfman, except it's a bit too classical for him, I think. I think so. It's a little bit too precise and a little bit too methodical. And it's highlighting sort of the differences of, you know, between Louis va- Louis as a vampire and the sort of Parisian vampires because they're meant to be a little bit more, more eccentric for Louis' taste. Mm-hmm. So their sound is meant to be... You know, it's meant to emulate a, an element of ridicule. Mm-hmm. And therefore, musically, it's quite avant-garde, well, for me, in its rhythms and the tonalities. And then at times, it's quite harsh and abrupt. I like how it's in contrast with the previous themes of the characters. Mm. You know, it's very mocking and it's quite funny. Yes, in a weird satirical. Way. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, just, yeah, overall, I mean, for me, the album just, it pushed the boundaries of mainstream film film music, whereby the score, you know, it captured all the following emotions of tragedy, horror, anxiety, seduction, and just romantic suffering, you know? So, yeah. All within a very classical aesthetic. Hmm. Not not modern at all, really. It's, it's, like, there's a modern sound to it in the production, but fundamentally, they're quite classical. Yeah. So, Tristan, tell me what's your third? Yes, we should probably do these a little bit quicker. (laughs) (laughs) Finding the final one was really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, the first ones are very much my favourite, the one that opened me to the the world. The second one that sort of opened me to different options, different things, the whole thing of game music and that that was a whole new burgeoning thing. This third one is a little bit more personal to me in that I think this these are the ones that establish my actual personal sound okay, and cool. style. And I couldn't really actually attach it to a single film because I feel like there were a sequence of films that happened in a very short space of time that actually had very similar sound of each, to each other. And I think they, they influenced each other quite a lot. The first of these films was American Beauty. Mm, okay. With the this score Thomas by, Newman, by yeah. Thomas Newman. So we'll, we'll just play a, like a little brief snippet of that now. So that was the that was the music that wasn't the opening title. That was the, the plastic bag sequence of music, and I think that's very sort of like uh, meditative 
kind of sound and infected Hollywood for a little while. I think yeah. a lot of people listened, you know, American Beauty won a lot of Oscars despite being kind of like one of these small films. It was quite a sort of big story in itself, American Beauty. And I think a lot of producers and directors then started asking people for the American Beauty sound. And so that was in 1999. Another film in the same year, which actually I didn't see at the time, I didn't see it until quite recently, but whose soundtrack I listen to all the time and I actually often when I'm sort of blocking out a scene of, well, what, what kind of music could I use? And I'll actually, like, place this music on top because I find it quite useful as in, as a guide mm. of, of what I can do, is The Sixth Sense. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. with, with music by J- James Newton Howard. And the particular track that I use a lot is the opening track, more or less, which is Run to the Church. Okay, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there it is, people. We have we have just name dropped yet another film with a choir prominently <laughs> placed within it. I think we've probably underestimated how many soundtracks actually use choirs. Yeah, we we might have. Maybe there's more than we think. Or maybe we just love them all. But I I love that meditative, again, that meditative, like repetitive kind of a quality. It's quite whimsical in some ways, you know. It's actually, uh, it's really pretty. Yeah, it's really Mm. nice. I think it's really apt and kind of cute that these are films from 1999, that these are films obviously from like right at the bridge of those two centuries, as it were, because I actually think that this particular sound is that bridge between the sort of primarily 90s music that we've been talking about so far today and the music we have now in that it's still quite melodic. Like, Mm. you you still definitely get a strong sense of melody and you could, okay, run to the church you might struggle with, but the American Beauty one you could kind of almost hum along to and remember the melody to a bit. So they were still very sort of melodic-based but they were clearly moving into the idea of more background, mm-hmm. like underscore sits underneath everything. So I think there's a, a, a cuteness to the fact that this is heading in the direction of where uh, Alexandre Desplat scores sound or when Hans isn't doing like big stuff or when he's doing his more intimate movies. It's again, is a sort of sound that like the repeating harmonic sequences, the sort of four chord sequences that just repeat and repeat and repeat with little variations over the top, sort of like the minimalism that's Mm -hmm, The layering. So I think like this is kind of where that really began to become, take primacy in terms of big films that you would have this sort of sound. I suppose beforehand, like the film that most sounds like these was Forrest Gump, also had a soundtrack a lot like this, the Sylvestri piano score for that. Anyway, yeah, I, I find that. So, but all, so all of this sound, the, the, so that one was by James Newton Howard. And James Newton Howard, I think, is actually the composer that I, for whatever reason, wind up sounding the most like. 
Um, he's not necessarily a composer that I particularly revere against any others, but in terms of, you know, every now and then you come across like another artist who, when you listen to their stuff, you're like, oh, he makes all of the decisions I do. Mm, it uh, speaks to you, basically. Yeah, it, it speaks to you, but also it's like, oh, you know, he's been presented with one of these scenes. That's what I would have done. Like he just he just always seems to make the same choices that I would, which you know, it's not to say that I'm the same or I'm as good or anything, but it's just like it's an interesting stylistic thing that we seem to be on a similar emotional wavelength okay. in terms of how we connect certain film emotions to music emotions, which is why again I tend to use his film to to needle drop into stuff because I'm like, well, he kind of does what I do, so I start from there and then I I go, which probably then reinforces the pattern, right? <laughs> I well, probably up, you might be subconsciously forcing yourself to sound like him. Then. I may. So at some point I'm going to have to work away, yeah, which is why I work with you. It does not sound <laughs> anything need, like yeah, him. Yeah, you need to shift away from him. Yeah. Put some Danny Elfman or some Elliot Goldenthal or something. Yeah, just to like Or some pop cycle. music maybe and then try and break that down. That's it. That's it. But so the soundtrack that I am going to talk about, which I think is the kind of the the pinnacle of this sound because it takes this sound and it really goes into the orchestral sound that I love. Uh, I don't know if you're going to have any idea that this is coming, but it's the Finding Nemo soundtrack. Oh I'm my going to God. play a track called Wow. <laughs> So that's the music that plays as they sort of first go into the, like the yeah. the reef and they're sort of like it's it's, it's the establishing shot right. of the reef. So it's, it's very lush. It's so lush. It's beautiful. It takes so to me. It takes that sound. Yeah. You can clearly hear the American Beauty there mm, with the sustained piano and the sort of the reverbs. And stuff, yeah, yeah, like it's it's exactly that sound. There's there's no pretense that they're copying that. They they obviously are. But then it it melds it with the yeah the sweet street there's a little strings. bit of a bit of a like when it kind of goes a little bit boogie and like yeah, you know it's a party a little bit you're dancing to it yeah, I oh, I'm not ashamed <laughs> I'm not ashamed Finding Nemo is a great film <laughs> yeah I should probably watch it I, that was the film I watched maybe once or twice yeah that's fair enough yeah 
I, I think for me, there's a thing that I'm much more into dark stuff mm, as yeah. opposed to your kitty. It's not your dark kitty. enough. Not Bruce dark the enough. shark wasn't enough. <laughs> no, no, God, no. I even with the, I, even I with the Jaws blood. reference? I needed blood and gore. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's a, it's very, it's a very, again, whimsical and very kiddish, but it's a perfect sort of piece of animation music, I guess. It yeah. is. It is. It's very evocative and it fits the scene. I, I love it's, the... And it's funny because it's different. It wouldn't, do you think it would work if it was in a sort of film scenarios or do you think it, would, it works better in an animation because of what it's trying to communicate for the visual, with the visuals? I think it probably needs to be in an animation. That said, if you'd put it over, like, March of the Penguins, it probably would have fit quite well. Yeah. But again... Without, without sort of trying to compare it to Emile Simone, who does an amazing job. I no, think no, it's the I've, right kind of set, because it's icy and glassy and aquatic. And but also because, again, it's like there are no voices. So, you, so the it's music almost an animation to, in yeah. itself. So yeah. the music has to speak for the characters, for them and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think it would fit like an actual, like, divers underwater human yeah. kind of a film. I think it would be a bit weird. Okay, well, it's quite an interesting... I didn't expect that. No? No, for finding me- Nemo to be the, pivot- the pivotal soundtrack that shaped sort of... Yeah, that you go to and... Stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's just... It's the, it is, I think, the best version for me because it is probably the most orchestral version mm. and I'm obviously a very orchestral bent, as it were. It's the most orchestral version of that for want of a better phrase, turn of the century film score sound. And like I really like Alexandre Desplat because he also kind of plays with this, but he takes it into a more keyboard base, like a lot more piano. He never met a decaying sound he didn't like. Um, lot, lots of like bells and pianos and things like that. He doesn't use as much string. And when he does, I don't particularly like the way he does it, whereas mm. I do like the way James Newton Howard does. Yeah, this is this is the sound I keep coming back to. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's funny how you learn quite a lot. You learn something new about your co-host every day. Yeah. 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 So, 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 what have you got? Oh God. So, as I said, so in the beginning of the episode, so um, my third one is actually a combination of certain tracks that from films, animation, and even just a soundtrack that I've never actually ha- I haven't watched the film. Oh, but controversial. Uh, yeah, but it's and it's all to, it's my Asian influence. Ah. Because I went through a phase, and I'm I'm still it's still part of my phase, I guess. Of like I love music from Japan or um, or China or you know any other parts of Southeast Asia. But like I'm I love the pentatonic scale. There's something about that particular scale and the way it creates melody that really really resonates with my own um, way okay. of composing. And um, because I always like to be able to write music that's simple, that's effective, mm. and that's memorable. And that's one of the things about pentatonic scale is that it's different to the Western music because yes. the Western music, it's, you know, a typical scale is on a seven note, whereas yes. the pentatonic is reliant on a five notes. And it's, um, it's emphasis is obviously in melody because it doesn't have any harmonic harmonics as much as the mm. Western music. So, like, um, East, you know, East Asian music is all about the melody. You know, harmony, harmonies are very rare, and when they are used, they are really they aren't really part of the tension or the release of the music. They're just there for a little extra color. Mm-hmm. And and another thing that you know is very major characteristic of East Asian music is transparency. 
you know, the focus on individual instruments, no matter how big the orchestra is, you know, each instrument has a, an individual role and is meant to be heard playing its own melody. And mm-hmm. um, again, since harmonies are rarely used, instruments aren't actually meant to provide background texture. And um, so they each carry their own melody. And so they you want them to be heard. And that's something that I found is very similar like the tracks that I've got, they all kind of share the same sort of pattern, okay. I guess. Okay. Um, and so the first track is actually from the Three Times Three Eyes film, um, animation film that I grew up watching. Um, it's by Japanese music composer um, called Karu Wada. And so I don't know if you want to know more a little bit about the story of the... Sure. So it's basically, um, it's about Pai, who's the last remaining member of a distinct, powerful and ancient race called Sanjian, um, which means like three eyes, triclops. And okay. she's um, basically, she meets this boy called Yakubo and she um, grants him, well, she first saves him from being from being from being fatally wounded by her pet demon, okay. and he's granted yeah he's granted the curse of immortality by her. Um, so it means that he's linked to her, and he can only become human again when she becomes human. And that's what the whole story is about: her wanting to become human so that she can forget about her troubled past and start a fresh life. And during the course of this the course of this quest they are hunted by followers of this now dead demon god Kai and Wang and all of whom want to kill Pai and use her power to um, resurrect this Kai and Wang and for them these followers to gain immortality and it's quite a bloody gory animation mm. like which is why it appeals to yeah it just why it appeals to me because like her um Yakumo you know Pai's also love interest as well um, he gets impaled, he gets murdered so many times in such horrific, brutal Oof. ways. It's like, I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so this is actually their love theme. Mm-hmm. And it's the song that I remember, it brings me to tears every time I hear it. Oh, here we go. Because <laughs> it's just so beautiful. And, uh, well, you tell me. Mm. You have a listen. And like I would like us to play all the way through because we won't be able to include it in the Spotify because there's no way of finding it anywhere. Oh, no. I know. Okay. I don't know how I managed to get this. So, uh, yeah, so you guys have to listen it, to it all the way through. Because it's the only time you'll ever hear it. Exactly. Thank you. 
So this is meant to be the scene when um, Pi sacrifices herself, you know, right. to save everybody, okay. you know, and destroy the follower of Kai and Wen and stuff mm-hmm. and for everyone to live heavily ever after. But it's obviously, you know, it's at a point where she has to say goodbye to Yakumo and mm-hmm. say, you know, I love you, you know, I'll always love you. And it's just, it's heartbreaking because there's also, he's bleeding himself <laughs> here to death, you know, yeah. after, you know, trying to save her from all these attacks yeah. and everything. Hits the heartstrings for me, and again, it's the real soaring moment too when that orchestra kicks in. It just and it's so simple. Again, it's a very simple melody, very simple notes, nothing much to it, but it's just it's I don't know, it's so effective. Yeah, it's great orchestration. It's it's very well done. Yeah, and it's very romantic, and yeah. So that's you know I obviously there are other tracks of the album that I really it introduced me to the world music aspect to it. Mm, so mm-hmm. particularly like at the end of the each episode, this particular song plays, which I liked how it combines a lot of. Oh, this uh, is a serial anime. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so okay. the seven episodes, and so it has elements of like Tibetan, Indian percussion and Oriental woodwind because the story itself has heavy. Um, he- relies heavily references on Hindu mythology okay. um, like the character of Pai and her heritage is derived from like the Shiva like an ancient Hindu okay. god of destruction and yet the gateway to the human world or back into their dimension is through in, is apparently is in Tibet yet all the action of all the f- action scenes and fight scenes are set in Tokyo so you know oh, there's, okay. there's it, you know, do you know what yeah. I mean it has all these kind of like so it has a pan-Asian quality kind of to it it's sort of Borrowing elements from all over the place. Yeah. Exactly. So this is what, it, for me, it was a real introduction to what's capable. I mean, what, yeah, what exists out there in yeah. the world. Do you know what I mean? It yeah, has so an many layers. Quality to it. it. Yeah, it just it, yeah, you never know what's coming. So many ethnic elements to it yeah. that I, you know, it was a real introduction that I really enjoyed. That I was just like, okay, this is what's capable. That you know, you can mix all these instrumentation in one. You know, and mm-hmm. for me again, there's a real sort of storytelling element to it. I really enjoyed another soundtrack that I found. I don't know. I can't remember how I found when I was 16 or 17 years old, but I never watched the film to it. But I remember the soundtrack, and again, it fuses the electronical elements and classical sensitivities okay. that, again, kind of merged with, with, yeah, what I, what I'm, with what I'm about. Yeah, and it's basically it's um, it's the film is called A Page of Madness, okay, but it's by uh, a electronic duo called In the Nursery. Oh, so basically, the film it's part of 
like in the late 90s, um, the band in the nursery were commissioned um, as part of the optical music series to provide new scores for the silent film classics, such as like the Cabinet of Doctor Doctor Caligari, yeah, Asphalt and Man with a Movie Camera and a Page of Mad of Madness. So oh, okay. this was their fifth in so the this series. This is like a 1920s silent film. Kind yeah, of. it's basically a 1920s film depict. Um, it, it's a Japanese film as well. Um, it's basically depicting the life of a man who works as a janitor in an insane asylum to be near his wife who's committed there for having to try to kill their child and stuff. So here's a track called Black Okina. very experimental you know it's very low-key yet so as not to overwhelm the visuals but it's strong enough to kind of suggest an atmosphere mm-hmm. and the bass underneath that sounds sort of very gamelan mm. like but i suspect it probably is gamelan i think orchestra. it is yeah. yeah and again you know it blends orchestral sensitivities and the electronic layers that really resonated with me when i was discovering instrumental music you know and being able to blend them together particularly when i was experimenting with logic because before then all music that i ever created and recorded was using a tape recorder using oh. in the hi-fi system you know where you yeah. have the two tape recorders yeah and you just like press play and just, yeah i used to do that too yeah, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I was the only one. Well, of course not. Um, but yeah, and I basically, in order to layer the sounds, I would have to use a mic and record each one. So Yeah, you'd overdub. You'd just record another yeah. layer on top of what you've already done. If you screwed it up, you had to start from the beginning. Uh, exactly. And yeah, I like how the album takes advantage of the film's sort of distinct setting, you know, and country of origin where it uses like koto and shamisa and four strings and um, how do you say, like shaka? Shakahachi. Shakahachi for flutes yeah and they probably obviously were performed electronically i don't think they Uh. used it but here's the one that i'm talking about called daughter kind of hear the combination of organic instrumentation mm. with like pads underneath yeah. you know which yeah. is 
it's the first, like I was probably about, yeah, 16, 17 when it came, when I first discovered it. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to find my own sound, you know, because yeah. I initially became more of like a solo artist, you know, and then gradually in my sort of mid 20s, I decided to go further into film music. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's the sound that I kind of always come back to, I, th I guess, through because I love minimalism and they mm. do kind of evoke a sort of repetitiveness as well as like layering different elements mm. on top of each other. If you were sort of like in a frame of mind where you were sort of subconsciously sort of fishing for a sound, like this is the sort of thing that was always going to attract your attention because it is just throwing so many new things at you that it's there's a, there's a lot there to click onto. It's nothing of that is going to have sounded the same as everything else you had heard. I think for any audience coming to that, they're going to be like, "Oh, Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting how they combined that sound that I know a little bit with mm. that sound, which is completely different. And with, you know, yeah, I agree. I, it's, it's, it's a great experimental, playful kind of a sound. Yeah. So yeah. are these artists Western or? They're, yeah, they're English. So they're from yeah. Sheffield. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Because it does have a definite Western sensibility to it. It's, sort of, it's playing with Asian sounds, but with a, a bass that feels quite, safely western i think well they're basically um in the nursery they're a neo neoclassical dark wave slash martial industrial band known for wow. their cinematic sound i know right well that is quite a genre <laughs> um descriptor right there and um apparently like they performed this um obviously because it was part of their series but um they performed it at the barbican mm -hmm. um yeah and i think i it's just kind of made me think like well why don't we take silent films and then re redo our own soundtracks onto them. It is know? a fun thing to do. But also it's very, um, it kind of, you have to think outside the box because, you know, you have to, you know, you get what you see. Mm -hmm. And, and you've got to work with it. Yeah. There's no way of going to the director and say, so what exactly are you trying to no, say with this no, film, with the scene? the long since passed on. Yeah, so you kind of have to, but which on the one hand is actually very freeing because you have all this freedom to kind of make up and go with whatever noise. But at the same time, you have to be quite disciplined to kind of remember that you are telling a story. Mm -hmm. That you mm -hmm. have to kind of try and stick to the visuals yeah. and not do your own thing too much, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, so those are like all the things that, influenced me yeah i guess so I any, su that. any surprises there or i'm not surprised that those are the sorts of sounds that influenced you i am very surprised at just how similar our sounds are yeah we think alike we do apparently we do which is why we work well together yeah you know? that must be it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well i hope you guys got to know us a little bit better yeah as well how we tick and how we work and how we're obsessed with 90s movie <laughs> music. Yeah, it is primarily 90s music. Um, where we come from and then that early 20th century stuff. Yeah. 21st century, rather. Exactly. And, yeah, so do catch, um, have a listen to our Spotify playlist yes, as well. And then do. we would love to hear what you think of, yeah, you know. Yeah, what are your favourites? Do you hate 90s music? Do you love 90s music? But, yeah, definitely share, share your favourites and, and maybe introduce us to some new stuff. Now, on to our... Well, yes, our episode for for next month for December. Is, what? Yeah, what's what's going to be this major season next month? I oh, can't yeah. think of it. You yeah, know, what so there's going to be December. There's something something up because I don't know what it is. It's uh, loads of like trees. There's meant to be mold wine. There's like eggnog. What is that? What does yeah, that signify? There's snow here. Oh yeah, snow. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be quite. And there's like choir singing. Quiet, more choirs. More choirs. <laughs> definitely, definitely more choirs. Carolers. Caroling and it's like we're meant to give gifts or something. Mm. Like, what's that? I can't think of the. What is the celebration? Is it? 
Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we will be talking about we'll, we'll be dissecting two Christmas films. Yes, and they are. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we haven't, <laughs> we haven't actually decided. Oh damn, we haven't said. Hey, hey, wait! <laughs> well, we haven't decided. So we've got some contenders. We have no idea. Yeah, what other content? Content. Hey, how about you decide? We so we've got Gremlins, Die Hard, Elf. What was the other one? Home Alone. Home Alone. So out of those four, tell us which ones you You'd think. Like us to break down. Which yeah. ones do you think? Should would we be put compelling? it to a vote? Yes, let's do that. In a soundtrack showdown first, we're going to put next month's episode options to a vote. We have four of our favourite Christmas movie soundtracks, and they're totally Christmas movies. Right. Aren't they? Uh, yeah, they definitely are. Yeah. Definitely Christmas movies. Uh, they're definitely like experimental Christmas movies some, as well. Some of them, yeah, some of them are around like the edges. Sub, sub, sub-genres, definitely. Sub-genres, yes. So the four you have to choose from, and we invite you to vote on any of our social media channels. Let us know which ones of these you would like us to throw up for contention, and the ones that receive the most votes we will put up against each other. And the four are, starting with the most Christmassy, Die Hard. Oh, really? I was going to say Gremlins. <laughs> but yeah, Gremlins. Home Alone or... Elf. <laughs> so, answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> and to our social media accounts, again, Die Hard. Gremlins. Home Alone. Elf. That's it. <laughs> and we will talk to you next month. Right, so see you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Cream-coloured ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favourite things. Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver-white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favourite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favourite things and then I don't feel so Whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Dresses with blue satin sashes.